classes, you might think that uh, Jesus is first speaking to the rich, the people who love money, and then he's turning his attention to the people who are anxious, those who don't have possessions, and they're, they're looking for, for possessions, and they're growing anxious because they do not have them. Is that what Jesus is doing here, though? Is Jesus looking at the rich and telling them, don't love money, and then looking at the poor and says, don't be anxious, God has got your back? No, I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. You see, the love of money and the anxiety that often comes uh, with possessions, they're not two separate attitudes that are limited to two separate socioeconomic types of people. When we assess our hearts, I think we can all recognize that both rich and poor have the tendency to love money. I think we all can recognize when we begin to really think about our motives that both rich and poor can get anxious about what they have in their bank account. In fact, I think we've probably experienced this, but some of the poorest among us are the ones who seem to love money the most. And vice versa, some of the richest among us are those who seem to be most anxious about their finances. These two attitudes uh, towards finances and possessions, they're actually pretty much universal. Both rich and poor tend to love money. Both rich and poor tend to grow anxious about their possessions. And that's important for everyone in here to recognize because everyone here... We probably fall into one or the other category. And and for many of us, we probably fall into both, depending on the day. Some days we find ourselves anxious about our possessions. Sometimes we find ourselves craving and desiring and loving money. So this is important for us to realize. So let's let's come to Jesus' words, humble and willing to hear what he has to say to us, whether we fall on one side of the pendulum or on the other First, Jesus addresses those who love money. Uh, Right now, there is a massive debate going on among Christians that is directly related to the way Christians spend money. Many of you have heard of this, but on Instagram, there's this debate unfolding right before our eyes, and it's it's following around this uh, this feed called Preachers in Sneakers. Uh, It's it's pretty funny to follow. Uh, It's a page on Instagram that is... Uh, just basically highlighting pastors uh, who wear these remarkably rare and expensive sneakers and clothing items. And so you'll have like a a post come up from preachers and sneakers of this preacher wearing these crazy expensive sneakers, and all of these comments start just rolling out, right? You have a a Christian pastor who's wearing a $2,000 pair of, $2,000 $2,000 pair of shoes, and so the comments just start unloading, right? What, what are we to think about this? What should we think about this? Obviously, uh, we're wondering, should a Christian pastor, or any Christian for that matter, wear a, a pair of shoes that cost $2,000 and a pair of, like, Gucci pants that cost him 900 bucks? Like, is that okay? That's the question being asked. And obviously, the question actually is, it's bigger than shoes. When you really think about it, uh, the question is far larger than shoes and Gucci pants. If you've seen uh, the, the American Gospel documentary, which highlights uh, the, the heresy of the prosperity gospel, which is 
playing forth uh, in in America. Uh, you've you've seen this, right? You watch this video, and you have Christian leaders who are being interviewed telling you that they will travel around on their own personal multi-million dollar jets. Uh, They'll tell you that when they're traveling on the road, they often will stay in hotels that cost them upwards of $20,000 a night. What should the Christian think about this? Is that okay? Is that wrong? Is that sinful? Is that a misjudgment? What's going on there? I think probably everyone in this room has asked the question, how should the Christian think about wealth? We've probably all thought to ourselves, is it okay for a pastor or a Christian to live in a house that's 10,000 square feet? Like, is that okay? Right, 10,000 square feet, in case you aren't familiar. That's like really, really big. That'd be a very, very large home. Like 10 of my homes, right? Um, like, is that okay? Well, Jesus speaks to these questions here in the Sermon on the Mount. And let me just point out, once again, Jesus is speaking to the heart. Right? He's going beneath the surface of the $2,000 pair of Gucci slides, and he's talking to the heart. What's driving that? What, what's getting, at, uh, uh, getting that person on the stage wearing that, that outfit? And here's what we see. Jesus says that we are to invest our money in eternal realities, eternal treasures. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. Clearly, Jesus is addressing the temptation that every human being has to lay up treasures here on earth. Mentioned this already, but this is a universal experience. Whether you are poor, whether you are rich, whether you are American, whether you are Chinese, whether you are Caucasian, or whether you are African American, we all are tempted to lay up treasures here on earth. We want the things of the world. We want to accumulate things for ourselves. It's funny how the human heart works, right? I was, I was just visiting my family in Florida. And one thing my family loves to do is they, they love to go out on the boat. So we'll go out on the boat. We'll drive around in the river. And at least in Florida, how it works is a lot of the wealthiest people live on the river, And so it's a constant like coveting battle going on in your heart as you're riding around on a boat because you're you're riding around on the boat looking at all the most expensive homes with the most expensive docks with the most expensive boats parked at the end of those expensive docks, right? And you're just wondering, man, how did these people make this money? How could I make that much money? How could I ever afford to live in a home like that? And for me, it's funny where I'm, out on the boat, I'm not really like a boating guy. I don't necessarily have the ambition of one day buying this massive boat and sailing across the world in it. That's not really what I've ever wanted to do. I've never really had that goal in life. And yet, as I'm riding around on the river, looking at these expensive homes with these expensive docks, with the expensive boat on the end of the dock, I find my heart desiring a nice boat. Never really wanted a nice boat. And yet, All of a sudden, I would love 
a nice boat. And I don't want, like, the, the rinky-dink, like, boat that is just going to die down, like, die on me, right? I, I want, like, the awesome fishing boat that's, like, fully equipped, right? That has, like, remarkably expensive engines on it, and it's got, like, four of them, just in case one of them ever dies, right? It's like, might as well if you can, you know? Uh, that's all of a sudden, like, beginning to mount up in my heart. Like, man, that boat is awesome. Like, you could literally sail or, or ride that boat anywhere in the world, and uh, you, you could go anywhere in that thing. I don't really care about boating, though, right? That's the funny thing, is you get out on the water, you begin to see these things, and all of a sudden, your heart has the ability to start craving things you don't really care all that much about. That's the way the human heart so often works. We see the earthly treasure, we see it begin to light up, we see it sparkle before our eyes, and our heart begins to crave it. But look what Jesus says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Verse 21, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So Jesus does warn against collecting material, earthly treasures here. But... Notice how he is more interested in what is happening beneath the surface in your heart. Verse 21 highlights this. He says, for, in other words, be careful to to heap up treasures on earth because, here's the reason why you need to avoid that, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is making it clear for us. Be careful not to store things up on earth for yourself. Because when you do that, you're going to find your heart beginning to, to crave that thing. Right? The more possessions you have, the more attached you begin to feel to this world. That's not all Jesus says here, though. He does not merely prohibit us from certain things, he actually gives us a positive call to action. He tells us, instead of storing up earthly treasures, store up heavenly ones. Which means us, or brings us all to ask the question, okay, what do you mean by that? Like, what does that even mean? What do you mean, store up heavenly treasures? How do I go about doing that? I think uh, this is a super important question because it it seems a little hard to understand what Jesus is saying at first. It seems like this very ambiguous statement that could mean almost anything. And I think for some of us, we might read this and think that Jesus is kind of spiritualizing. He's kind of like spiritualizing uh, the idea of treasure here. You might be thinking he's saying, don't lay up physical treasures on earth, because that's physical things, that's money, Instead, you should lay up spiritual treasures through, like, doing good works or something, right? Maybe that's what you, you read this, and that's probably where your mind goes, something along those lines. Do things that are good works. But I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I think what Jesus is saying is that instead of using our finances on things that accumulate rust that are destroyed on earth, we ought to use our finances on things that have eternal value, right? So he's not saying quit focusing on money, start focusing 
on spiritual things. He's saying, quit using your money for treasures on earth. Start using your money for things that will last into eternity. I think that's really what Jesus is getting at here. Use your finances for the good work of God's kingdom. You ought to think about the ways in which you can use your finances for eternal significant things. And and this is important because we may be tempted into thinking that making money is a bad thing. We might be tempted to thinking making a lot of money is a bad thing. However, I would argue that if you have the ability to make a lot of money, that's actually a gift if you are able to use it for the kingdom of God. Right? A successful businessman is not a person living in perpetual sin. A successful businessman is someone who is able to make money and then with God's help and by God's grace use that money for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's an important thing for us to understand as we're reading through this passage. For those who have the ability to make money and have the ability to make a lot of money, which some people just do, they're, they're wired that way, we need to make sure that we're, we're pushing those people to use their money for the kingdom and not just on themselves, not in order to just store up treasures here on earth. So how can we give? How can we give? Here's a couple of different ways in which I think for, for us, maybe many of you here aren't necessarily making tons of money, and yet I think this is still applicable. No matter whether you are rich or poor, I think there are still principles here for you. We ought to all be giving. So, here are some ways. Sacrificially give to the church. Sacrificially give to the church. Because as we give to the church, we are helping God's kingdom expand. As we give to the church, we're helping God's kingdom expand. And that's because our giving will enable pastors to devote their time to expanding God's kingdom. Uh, Just very quickly, there's a movement right now, like a lot of churches will follow this, where for whatever reason, they think it's more spiritual, like better use of kingdom funds or something like that to to not pay their pastors uh, to work full-time in the church, but instead for pastors to do bivocation. This isn't wrong, but it's almost as if that seems more spiritual or something, right? If your pastor is working 40 hours a week in the public arena and then working in addition to that in the church and preaching on top of that, then somehow that's better or or more spiritual, right? That's kind of a movement in Christianity right now. You'll see a lot of churches organizing that themselves that way and organizing that themselves that way on purpose and acting as though that's a more spiritual way to run the church. That's not necessarily the case, As we give to the church and enable pastors to labor full-time in the church, that's going to enable more ministry in the church to happen. So we give sacrificially so that pastors can devote themselves to the work of ministry. In addition, we give to the church so that we might help pay for, for buildings and and ministries to happen. And that might sound weird, like, but think about it. When you're paying for a building and you're enabling gospel ministry to take place in a building, a building like this uh, enables gospel ministry to happen on a daily basis. And daily ministry has been going on here for decades. 
right? You are enabling things to happen. You're enabling Christians to gather together and hear God's word. As you give to this ministry, you are enable, enabling this ministry to happen on a weekly basis. As you give here, you help retreats happen. You help events take place. You, you enable gospel ministry to take place here in our midst on a Tuesday night. But I want to point out that there are other ways to give. Right? Giving to the church is not the only way that you can give in order to advance gospel ministry. I would also say give for the sake of missions. Give for the sake of missions. In order for missions to take place, people need to go across the world and, and pay for plane tickets and pay, that they, or, or pay for housing or on the other side of the world. Right? In order for, for missions to take place successfully, we need to be giving. I, w- I would actually encourage you to join our Estonia team. And joining our Estonia team does not only mean joining us physically and coming with us to Estonia, right? The, the team, uh, our, our team going to Estonia this summer, we are seeking to add partners. And one way that we can add partners is by you coming alongside us and sacrificing your time by praying for us. One way for, for us to add partners onto our team is for you to come alongside us and to help pay for us to go financially, so that we might go and spread God's kingdom work among a nation where there is so little access to the message of Jesus. There's more ways for you to give. I want to help you to think outside the box a little bit here. How can you give in order to help gospel ministry to happen? There are very simple ways. Things like inviting someone out to eat who doesn't have the the money to eat and going out with them, spending time with them, having conversations with them. Those are important things too. Inviting someone new to in and out with us on a Tuesday night after we're done and just comping their meal for them so that they can get plugged into this ministry, get plugged in, meet people. That is enabling gospel ministry to happen. So, so wherever you are investing your, your earthly finances in order to see ministry opportunities happen, that has eternal rewards. Because the hope is is that as you spend your money, what you're spending it on is going to have an eternal eternal, uh, ramification. People will end up in heaven because of the way that you spent your money. People will end up more mature in their Christian walk because of the way you spent your money. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And with all of that said, we need to recognize that the only way that we're going to be able to sacrificially and generously give is when we take verses 22 to 24 seriously. Here, Jesus is pointing out the dangers of loving money. Here we see that Jesus is pointing out the dangers of loving money, and he he, proves his point in two ways. First, he gives this illustration, and then after the illustration, he gets a little less uh, unclear. (laughs) He gets a little more clear. So in verses 22 and verses 23, let me just read that. Here's what he says. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then... The light in you is darkness. 
How great is the darkness? Now, at first glance, you might be thinking, like, this doesn't seem to have anything to do with money, right? That's a fair assumption because you're reading this and you're, okay, he's talking about the eye and he's talking about the light. I don't see the word money in here anywhere. But think about it. He was just talking about finances, and in verse 24, he makes it very clear that he's still talking about finances. So what's going on here? This illustration of the eye and light uh, is actually a biblical reference that we see throughout the Bible regarding generosity and stinginess. So, for instance, in Proverbs 23, verse 6, And then again in Proverbs 28, verse 22, we see that the greedy and the stingy have an evil eye. They have a bad eye. When they look out at the world, they are not seeing people as objects to, to pour out generosity on. Instead, they're looking out for themselves. Again, verse 23, look at what he says there. If your eye is bad, or verse uh, 22, sorry. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So the word there that's translated healthy, that word can actually also mean generosity. So he's actually drawing this contrast between the generous eye, the person who's on the lookout for doing good for others, and the evil eye, the eye that's only looking for Uh, looking out for itself. There are two different types of people, two different types of outlooks, two different types of eyes going on here. The evil one and the stingy one versus the good and the generous one. So Jesus' point is that when you are generous, you are filled with light. When you have a generous eye, when you have a good, healthy eye, and you're looking out for the good of others, you are filled with light. Remember, that's central to the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before others that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So as we show generosity, our light is shining. And yet, when we have an evil eye, when we have a bad eye, when we have a covetous, stingy eye, we're not showing light. Instead, we're showing darkness. We're proving that we are not of the light. So Jesus is calling us to live generous lives. He's calling us to be on the lookout for doing good, for using our wealth for the sake of the kingdom so that our light might shine before others. Others might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Now, as we get to 24, verse 24, we see Jesus pinpoints the main thrust of his idea here. Verse 24, very famous passage. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot love both God and money. You cannot be devoted to both God and money, because once you begin to devote yourself to one, you're going to begin to despise the other. Jesus shows here the love of money is actually idolatry. Because when you are loving money, you are putting yourself in opposition to God. Money is actually an idol here when we love it beyond 
our love for God. Idolatry is rooted in love. And so when you show love towards money, you begin to serve it. It becomes your master. It becomes your God. And yet Jesus is calling us not to idolatry, but to love God holistically with our finances. And that's, that, this is where, I think, for us, we need to pay attention to what the gospel teaches us regarding finances. Think about it for a moment. Jesus is the creator, the creator of all things. And the creator of all things put aside the comforts of heaven so that he might sacrifice his life for our good. So sacrificial love. Jesus is showing us sacrificial love. Putting aside comforts so that he might show us love. The owner of all things set aside the riches of heaven in order to become poor for our sake. So think about this. The one who owns everything, the one who owns a a cattle on a thousand hill, the, the one who has all the riches of heaven at his right hand, he becomes poor so that he might serve you. He doesn't allow his possessions to take hold of his heart and to prohibit him from showing love for his creation. The gospel demonstrates sacrificial love to the greatest extent imaginable imaginable because the king of glory became a peasant so that he might demonstrate love for his people so that we might be brought into his marvelous kingdom the gospel tells us to put aside the love of money for the sake of others that's exactly what christ did he put aside his possessions. He put aside everything he owns. He put aside all of his comforts so that he might come and serve us. Right? When you have that sort of attitude about money, that is when the gospel is going to be able to excel in your life. When you begin to treat money as a mere tool for gospel ministries instead of your treasure, that's when gospel ministry is going to actually be able to flourish because you're using money what is, for what it's intended for a mere tool to see the gospel advance, to see God's kingdom advance. So let's follow Christ's example by sacrificing so that his kingdom might expand. Now, as we continue on in our passage, Jesus now turns to address uh, another human attitude towards finances. So we just saw Jesus warns us against loving money. Now Jesus is showing us that we have to resist finance-driven worry and anxiety. I'm sure that you are aware many Americans wrestle with anxiety. I'm sure some of you in this room have probably wrestled with anxiety. A couple of studies, really quick. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America, they estimate... 40 million adults struggle with anxiety-related issues every year. 40 million. It's over 18%. The National uh, Institute of Mental Health, they give an even higher uh, estimate. They say 19% 
of U.S. adults, this is only considering adults, by the way, but on about 19% of U.S. adults uh, had some sort of anxiety disorder in the past year. Uh, they say the anxiety disorders uh, are higher for females, about 23.5%, uh, than they are for males, about 14%. But then they go on, and this is, this is pretty staggering, then they go on to estimate that 31% of U.S. adults experience some sort of anxiety d- disorder at some point during their lifetime. So that's a third of the population, according to this this study, is saying that a third of the American population, just adults, will struggle with some sort of anxiety disorder. And maybe those numbers are inflated. Maybe those numbers are high. Uh, Maybe they're overestimating. But even if they are, like those numbers are staggering, right? Massive amounts of Americans suffer with some type of anxiety, and yet Jesus speaks to it. And I think this is, this is key, right? This is three chapters, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, three chapters. Uh, and of all the things Jesus chooses to speak to, he spends almost half a chapter talking about anxiety. So, let's listen, right? This obviously was an issue in Jesus' day. This was not only, uh, this is not only some sort of contemporary 21st century American problem. No, this is something that people have been struggling with throughout all time, all of history. This has been an issue that has been confronted by every society and every culture. And Jesus has something to say about it. So here, Jesus uses finances, he uses possessions uh, as an example of one thing that causes anxiety in our hearts. Right? Our view of money can prompt us to be worried. It can, it can prompt us to be overwhelmed. Certainly there are other things that can cause anxiety, but here he's speaking specifically about money and possessions. And we'll get to some of the other things in a moment. But look at Jesus' words. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You see, Jesus is still talking about earthly possessions here. He's saying, do not be anxious about your life. Do not worry about the food you're going to eat, the drink that you're going to drink, the clothing you're going to wear. It's really, in a sense, the flip side of what we saw in the previous passage. There's this one temptation to accumulate everything that catches our eyes. And so we amass a, a large amount of possessions. And on the other side of the coin... We have this temptation to worry and grow anxious about possessions. Am I going to get enough to eat? Am I going to get enough to, to uh, drink? Am I going to have clothing to wear? Right? This is anxiety. And Jesus is addressing the fact that we so often want to take matters into our own hands. And this is important because this is really at the heart of what's going on here. We need to make sure that we have everything that we need putting all the emphasis on what we can do for ourselves, and that's what's ultimately causing anxiety. There's a severe lack of trust, according to Jesus, here in this passage. We often lack 
the necessary dependence on God that we need to avoid this specific type of anxiety. Here's the deal. We are finite beings. We are not sovereign. We're not in in pure control of our lives. We do not sit on a throne and, and, and yield sovereign control. And so whenever we attempt to take matters into our own hands, we grow remarkably anxious and worried. When we begin to try to take things into our finite hands, we begin to live lives with a constant question mark before our eyes. Where am I going to get the funds for that? Where am I going to get the money to pay for that? Where am I going to be able to uh, get what I need in order to make this happen? But Jesus is saying here that your anxiety is proof that you think you have the ultimate answer to your question. You're placing your trust in your ability to make things happen. And maybe your tendency isn't to depend on yourself. Maybe your dependency is on someone else. And so you put someone else in the driver's seat and say, this person's in control of giving me what I need. This person has has the ability to provide for me. This person's going to come through for me. And in that situation, you have the same exact scenario. You are placing your trust in a human individual to make something happen that only God is capable of making happen. And when you think that a human being is going to be the one to answer all of these questions, and guess what? Anxiety will not be far behind. Because deep down, deep down, we know, we know people are not dependable. We know that people are not able to 100% of the time come through on their promises. We know that we cannot wholeheartedly trust every individual we talk to. We are unreliable. As human beings, we are unreliable. And so when we begin to, to place our trust in people that we know within our hearts are unreliable, anxiety begins to creep in. Right? The thoughts begin to steamroll our minds. Anxiety and worry begin to swell. And I want to point out here that our situation is even worse because finance, uh, possessions, money, these are not the only things that we grow anxious over. We grow anxious over all sorts of things, and Jesus knows this. Notice what he says. Uh, he points out that the actual issue here is not necessarily just the anxiety over money. The issue here is seeking to take control of what we cannot control. Look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So here he's broadening the scope. He's backing up. He's giving us a bigger picture. It's not just about money. It's all things. We become anxious over anything and everything that is outside of our control. So, for example, who here has not worried about a school's acceptance letter? Who here has not worried over family strife or over a raise at work or over finding a spouse or over a broken, or over a broken down car? We worry about things that are remarkably outside of our control. That's how we work. 
In reality, no matter the situation, whether it's finances or whether it's anything else, we worry over anything that is outside of our sphere of power. You know, I think the Discovery Channel kind of banks on this. Have you, have you ever, like, watched one of those shows that's just, like, a show about potential catastrophes that could one day happen? Like, what's going on with that, right? The Discovery Channel is literally banking on human anxiety, right? We sit down and we watch this show about this fault that will one day maybe have a cataclysmic rupture and send a, a, a world catastrophe across the ocean and just destroy a civilization. Wow, maybe that could happen one day, right? We, we watch the show and it tells us about how Yellowstone is going to eventually blow up, like the whole entire thing. And it's going to be like sometime in the next 10,000 years, like guaranteed. And you're like, I can't, it could happen any day. Like, we're just, like, sitting there, jaw drops to the ground. I mean, even as I'm saying this, maybe for some of you, your, like, heart is racing. Like, really? I didn't know that about Yellowstone. (laughs) I was just there last summer, right? Um, The fact is, is that these shows succeed because we, as people, we worry about things that are remarkably out of our hands. Like, I cannot control a fault line. I cannot control geysers at Yellowstone. Like, I can't control the San Andreas Fault from splitting you know, and if it does, I'm not going to be able to do anything to help it. And, and like Dwayne the Rock Johnson isn't coming to my rescue, right? It's not happening. We cannot add a single minute to our lives by worrying. We cannot turn one hair on our head gray. Well, you kind of can by anxiety, but that's not the point, right? You don't have the ability to add to your life by worrying. You don't have the ability to just make things happen through your worrying. And so what is Jesus' solution here? What do we do with our worry? Like, do we just watch more Discovery Channels and start preparing? Like, no. Like, that, please don't, right? Instead, we are to trust in our Heavenly Father because He knows what we need, and He's actually able to provide So Jesus says, go outside and look at the birds, right? He says, go outside and look at the lilies, the flowers of the field. Take a a breath of fresh air, look around, and look at what God has done. He has provided birds with worms, given them sustenance. He says, go look at the flowers over there, the beautiful blue-hued flowers, and just gaze at their beauty. God cares for for things in his creation that are far less significant than you. What does Jesus say here? God cares for the grass of the field, which tomorrow it's thrown into an oven. Of course he's going to care for you. You are far more significant than the grass of the field. God knows what you need, and he will provide for you as he sees fit. He will provide clothing for our backs. He will provide food for our stomachs. He will care for us all of our days. He knows exactly what we need. And here's, here's where things get a little tricky. Because sometimes God knows what we need, and, and what we need sometimes is to actually go without his provisions until the very last second. That's actually what we need at times. At times, God is going to, to build our faith by allowing us to live in our poverty 
for a little bit longer than we think is comfortable. God might do that. He's going to provide for you, and yet sometimes God will allow us to go norm, or longer than normal without our daily provisions because he wants us to, to, to learn to trust him. Right? That is what he is doing at times. He might allow you to lose a job. He might allow you to lose a scholarship. And, and you might be tempted to thinking, God is not taking care of my every need. And yet, in that moment, he is teaching you what you actually need to learn to trust him. You know, Christ is proof of this very reality that God is willing to take care of you, especially when it comes to your deepest needs. Right? Jesus knew your need when he took on flesh. Jesus knew your deepest need when he decided, I'm going to go live in a broken world. I'm going to leave the throne room of heaven and enter into humanity, deal with mosquitoes and sunburns. Like, I'm going to deal with that stuff for their sake. He was dealing with our greatest need. Jesus knew our needs when he suffered to the deepest extent in order to provide for us exactly what we needed. God's willingness to provide is shown in his willingness to offer what we need, even if it takes death to get it there. The gospel is a constant reminder that God knows our deepest needs and then provides for them. And get this, because God has not left us to deal with our deepest needs imaginable, our sin that leaves us separated from God, because God is not willing to to allow that to go by the wayside and said he deals with it, why should we ever think that he is incapable of taking care of our daily needs? He deals with the far more substantial needs. He's able to deal with the daily needs. He is worthy of our trust and he's worthy of our dependence. And what does this mean? This means that we ought to have a freedom in our ministry because we know that God will take care of us and he will provide for us. This gives us the freedom to sacrificially give, to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, seek me. Sacrificially love. Expand my kingdom, even if it means you're going you're gonna to spend more money on this meal than you thought you would have. Even if it means you're going to go over your budget, and you're not going to be able to save quite as much this month because you're taking someone out to dinner who's hurting and in pain. It means you, you may not be able to go to Starbucks on your own because you've decided to invite someone over to your house and pay for a meal. It means you may give more than you find comfortable to the church so that the church ministry might go on. Sacrificial giving because you know God is able to provide for us. This doesn't mean he's going to bless us with riches. You don't sow your seed and reap back a massive harvest. No. You spend everything you have and you can trust him that he will take care of you. You spend your life, you spend your energy, you spend the finances that you can manage and he will then take care of you. That's Jesus' words here. Those are his comforting words here. So with that said, let's pray and then we will close our time with singing. Uh, God, we, we come to you uh, 
Just so thankful that you promise us good gifts as your children. You are willing to provide even when we lack. You are willing to, to offer our greatest needs, such as reconciliation to you. And so we know, because you're willing to do that for us, we know you're willing to take care of us in the small things. And so we pray that as we leave here, we would be comforted with that truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.